what I'd like to do today is continue our discussion of supervised learning. So last Wednesday, you saw the linear regression algorithm, uh, including both gradient descent, how to formulate the problem, then gradient descent, and then the normal equations. What I'd like to do today is um, talk about locally weighted regression, which is a, a way to modify linear regression to make it fit very nonlinear functions, so you aren't just doing straight lines. And then uh, we'll talk about probabilistic interpretation of linear regression, and that will lead us into the first classification algorithm you see in this class called logistic regression. And we'll talk about an algorithm called Newton's method uh, for logistic regression. And so the dependency of ideas in this class is that um, locally weighted regression will depend on what you learned in linear regression. And then um, we're actually going to just cover the key ideas of locally weighted regression and let you play with some of the ideas yourself in the um, problem set one, which we'll release later this week. And then um, I guess give a probabilistic interpretation of linear regression, logistic regression will depend on that, um, and Newton's method is for logistic regression. Okay. To recap the notation you saw on Wednesday, we use this notation, xi comma I, yi, to denote a single training example where uh, xi was n plus one dimensional. So if you had two features, the size of a house and the number of bedrooms, then xi would be two plus one, would be three dimensional, because we had introduced a new uh, sort of fake feature, x zero, which was always set to the value of one. Uh, and then yi, in the case of regression, is always a real number. n was the number of training examples, n was the number of features. And uh, this was the hypothesis, right? It's a linear function of the features x, um, including this feature x0, which is always set to 1. And uh, j was the cost function you would minimize. You minimize this as a function of j to find the parameters theta for your straight line fit to the data. Okay? So that's what you saw last Wednesday. Um, now, if you have a data set that looks like that, where this is the size of a house and this is the price of a house. What you saw on Wednesday, last Wednesday, was an algorithm to fit a straight line right, to this data. So the hypothesis was of the form theta 0 plus theta 1x, or x or theta 1x1, right, same thing. Um, but with this data set, maybe it actually looks you know, maybe the data looks a little bit like that. And so one question that you have to address when uh, fitting models to the data is, what are the features you want? Do you want to fit a straight line to this problem? Or do you want to fit a hypothesis of the form um, theta 1x plus theta 2x squared, since this may be a quadratic function, right? Now, the problem with quadratic function is that a quadratic function eventually starts you know, curving back down, or that would be a quadratic function. This starts curving back down, so maybe you don't want to fit a quadratic function. Uh, instead, maybe you want um, to fit something like that. If, if housing prices sort of curve down up a little bit, but you don't want it to eventually curve back down the way a quadratic function would, right? Um, so, oh, and, and if you want to do this, the way you would implement this is you define the first feature x1 equals x, and the second feature x2 equals x squared, or you define x1 to be equal to x, and x2 equals square root of x, 
right? And by defining a new feature, x2, which can be the square of x or square root of x, then the machinery that you saw from Wednesday of linear regression applies to fit these types of, um, these types of functions to the data. So later this quarter, you'll hear about feature selection algorithms, which is a type of algorithm for automatically deciding do you want x squared as a feature, or square root of x as a feature, or maybe you want um, log of x as a feature, right? But what sort of features um, does the best job fitting the data that you have if it's not fit well by a perfectly straight line? Um, what I'd like to do today is, so, so you hear about feature selection later this quarter. What I want to share with you today is a different way of addressing this, out, this problem of what if the data isn't just fit well by a straight line, and in particular, I want to share with you an idea called uh, locally weighted regression or, or locally weighted linear regression. So let me use a slightly different um, example to illustrate this, um, which, is, uh, which is that you know, if you have a data set that looks like that, right? so it's pretty clear what the shape of this data is, um, but how do you fit a curve that you know, kind of looks like that, right? And it's, it's actually quite difficult to find features. Is it square root of x, log of x, x cubed, like third root of x, x to the power of 2 thirds, but what is the set of features that lets you do this? So we'll sidestep all those problems with an algorithm called uh, locally weighted regression. Um, And to introduce a bit more machine learning terminology, um, in machine learning, we sometimes distinguish between parametric learning algorithms and non-parametric learning algorithms. <coughs> but in a parametric learning algorithm, there's a, uh, you fit some fixed set of parameters, such as data i, to data. And so linear regression, as you saw it last Wednesday, is a parametric learning algorithm because there's a fixed set of parameters, the theta i's that you fit to data, and then you're done, right? Locally weighted regression will be our first exposure to a non-parametric learning algorithm. Um, and what that means is that the amount of um, data slash parameters uh, you need to keep grows, and in this case it grows linearly. With the size of the data, with the size of the training set. Okay? So with a parametric learning algorithm, no matter how big your training uh, your training set is, you fit the parameters theta i, then you could erase the training set from your computer memory and make predictions just using the parameters theta i. In a non-parametric learning algorithm, which we'll see in a second, the amount of stuff you need to keep around in computer memory, or the amount of stuff you need to store around, grows linearly as a function of the training set size. Uh, and so this type of algorithm is, you know, it may, may, may not be great if you have a really, really massive data set because you need to keep all of the data around. You know, in computer memory or on disk just to make predictions. Okay? So, but we'll see an example of this. And uh, 
one of the effects of this is that well, that it'll, it'll be able to fit that data that I drew up there uh, quite well without you needing to fiddle manually with features. Um, and again, you get to practice implementing locally weighted regression at homework. So I'm going to go over the high level ideas relatively quickly and then let you uh, uh, gain practice uh, in the problem set. All right, so let me redraw that data set. Let me do something like this. Well, all right, so, so, so say you have a data set like this. Um, now, for linear regression, if you want to evaluate h at a certain value of the input, So to make a prediction at a certain value of x, what you, for linear regression, what you do is you fit theta you know, to minimize this cost function um, and then you return theta transpose x. Right? So you fit a straight line. And then, you know, if you want to make a prediction at this value x, you then return, say, the transpose x. For locally weighted regression, um, you do something slightly different, which is, if this is the value of x and you want to make a prediction around that value of x, what you do is you look in a lo little local neighborhood at the training examples close to that point x where you want to make a prediction. And then um, I'll describe this informally for now, but we'll, we'll formalize this in math in a second. Um, but focusing mainly on these examples and you know, looking a little bit at further out examples, but really focusing mainly on these examples, you try to fit a straight line like that, focusing on the training examples that are close to where you want to make a prediction. And by close, I mean, the values are similar uh, on the x-axis. The x-values are similar. And then, to actually make a prediction, you will uh, use this green line that you just fit to make a prediction at that value of x. Okay? Now, if you want to make a prediction at a different point, um, let's say that you know, the user now says, hey, make a prediction for this point. Then what you would do is you can focus on this local area Kind of look at those points, um, and when I say focus, say you know, put most of the weight on these points. But you kind of take a glance at the points further away, but most of the attention is on these. Put a straight line to that, and then you use that straight line to make a prediction. Okay, um, and so to formalize this in locally weighted regression, um, you will fit theta to minimize a modified cost function where wi is a weight function um, and so a good well the default choice a common choice of wi will be this I'm 
going to add something to this equation a little bit later. But uh, wi is a weighting function where, notice that this, this formula has um, defining property, right? If xi minus x is small, then the weight will be close to 1 because uh, if xi and x, so x is the location where you want to make a prediction, and xi is the input x for your i training example. So wi is a weighting function. Um, there's a value between 0 and 1 that tells you how much should you pay attention to the values of xi comma yi when fitting, say, this green line or that red line. And so if xi minus x is small, so if that's a training example that is close to where you want to make the prediction for x, then this is about e to the 0, right? e to the negative 0 if the, if the numerator here is small, and e to the 0 is close to 1. Right? Um, and conversely, if xi minus x is large, then wi is close to 0. And so if xi is very far away, so let's say you're fitting this green line, and this is your example, xi, yi. Then it's saying, give this example all the way out there, if you're fitting the green line, right? If you're looking at this first x, saying that example should have a weight very close to 0. Okay? Um, and so if you um, look at the cost function, the main modification to the cost function we've made is that we've added this weighting term. Right? And so what locally weighted regression does is the same. If an example xi is far from where you want to make a prediction, multiply that error term by 0 or by a constant very close to 0. Um, whereas if it's close to where you want to make a prediction, multiply that error term by 1. And so the net effect of this is that this is summing, if, if you know, the terms multiplied by 0 disappear, right? So the net effect of this is that this sums over essentially only the terms uh, for the squared error for the examples that are close to the value, close to the value of x where you want to make a prediction. Okay? Um, and that's why when you fit theta to minimize this, you end up paying attention only to the points, only to the examples close to where you want to make a prediction and fitting a line, like the green line over there. Okay? Um, so let me draw a couple more pictures to, to, to illustrate this. Um, so if, let me draw a slightly smaller data set just to make this easier to illustrate. Um, so that's your training set. So that's your know, examples x1, x2, x3, x4. And if you want to make a prediction here, right, at that point x, then um, this curve here looks, the, the, the shape of this curve is actually like this. Right? Um, and it, this is the shape of a Gaussian bell curve, but this has nothing to do with a Gaussian density. Right? So this thing does not integrate to 1. So, so this just, sometimes people ask, well, is this, is this using Gaussian density? The answer is no. Uh, this is just a function that um, is shaped a lot like a Gaussian, but you know, Gaussian densities, probability density functions, have to integrate to 1, and this does not. So there's nothing to do with a Gaussian probability density. Question? 
Oh, sure. How do you choose the world? Let me get back to that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and so for this example, this height here says give this example a weight equal to the height of that thing. Give this example a weight equal to the height of this, height of this, height of that. Right? Which is why, if you actually, if you have an example that's way out there, you know, it's given a weight that's essentially zero, which is why it's weighting only the nearby examples when trying to fit a straight line right, uh, for, the, for making predictions close to this. Okay. Um, now, so one last thing that I want to mention, which is um, the, the question just now, which is how do you choose the width of this Gaussian density, right? How fat is it? Or how thin should it be? Um, and this decides how big a neighborhood should you look in order to decide what's the neighborhood of points that you use to fit this you know, local straight line. And so um, for a Gaussian function like this, uh, this I'm going to call this the um, bandwidth parameter tau. Right? And this is a parameter or hyperparameter of the algorithm. And uh, depending on the choice of tau, um, uh, you can choose a fatter or thinner bell-shaped curve, which causes you to look in a bigger or a narrower window in order to decide um, you know, how many nearby examples you use in order to fit the straight line. Okay? And it turns out that, um, and I want to leave you to discover this yourself in the problem set. Um, if, if you've taken a little bit of machine learning elsewhere, I've heard of the terms open. Test is on? Okay, good. We're still on. Good. It turns out that um, the choice of the bandwidth tau has an effect on uh, overfitting and underfitting. If you don't know what those terms mean, don't worry about it. We'll define them later this quarter. But uh, what you get to do in the problem set is uh, play with tau yourself and see why um, uh, if tau is too broad, you end up fitting um, you end up over-smoothing the data, and if tau is too thin, you end up fitting a very jagged fit to the data. And if any of these things don't make sense yet, don't worry about it. They'll make sense after you play a bit in the, in the problem set. Okay. Um, so yeah, since, since you, you play with the varying tau in the problem set and see for yourself the net impact of that. Okay, question? Thank you. Uh, this is tau squared. Yeah. Uh, what happens if you need to infer the value of uh, h outside the scope of the data set? It turns out that you could still use this algorithm. It's just that uh, um, its results may not be very good. Yeah, it, 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 it depends, I guess. It, it, um, locally weighted linear regression is usually not great at extrapolation, but then most many learning algorithms are not great at extrapolation. So all, all the formulas still work. You still implement this, but um, yeah, you can also try. You can also try it in your problem set and see what happens. Right, just one last question. Is it possible to have like a variable tau depending on if some parts of your data have lots of Oh, yeah. Yes, is it possible to variable tau depending on, uh, uh, yes, it is. Uh, and there are quite complicated ways to choose tau based on how many points there are in the local region and so on, yes. There's a huge literature on different formulas. Actually, for example, instead of this Gaussian bump thing, 
uh, there's a, sometimes people use that triangle shape function, so it absolutely goes to zero upside some small range. So there are, there are many versions of this algorithm. Um, so I tend to use uh, uh, locally weighted linear regression when uh, you have a relatively low dimensional data set. So when the number of features is not too big, right? So when n is quite small, like two or three or something, and we have a lot of data, and you don't want to think about what features to use, right? So, so that's the scenario. So if, if you actually have a data set that looks like these I've been drawing, you know, locally weighted linear regression is, is, a, is a pretty good algorithm. Um, all right, just one last question. Don't move on. Oh, sure, yes, if a lot of data won't be computation expensive, yes, it would be. Uh, I guess a lot of data is relative, uh, yes. We have, you know, two, three, four dimensional data and hundreds of examples, I mean, thousands of examples. Uh, it turns out the computation needed to fit the minimization is uh, similar to the normal equations, um, and so you, it involves solving a linear system of equations of dimension equal to the number of training examples you have. So if that's, you know, like a thousand or a few thousand, that's not too bad. Uh, if you have millions of examples, then then there are also more sophisticated algorithms like KD trees and much more complicated algorithms to do this when you have millions or tens of millions of examples. Yeah. Um, okay, so really, you get a better sense of this algorithm when you play with it um, in the problem set. Now, the second topic, when the, so, so I'm going to put aside locally weighted regression. Uh, we won't talk about that set of ideas anymore. Uh, today, but, but what I want to do today is, um, uh, on last Wednesday I had said that, I had promised last Wednesday that today I'll give a justification for why we use the squared error, right? Why the squared error, why not, you know, to the fourth power or absolute value? Um, and so um, what I want to show you today now is a probabilistic interpretation of linear regression. And this probabilistic interpretation will put us into good standing as we go on to logistic regression today, uh, and then generalize linear models uh, later this week. Okay. Maybe I'll keep, up the, keep the notation there so you can continue to refer to it. So, right, so why least squares? Why squared error? Um, going to present a set of assumptions under which least squares using squared error falls out very naturally, right? which is, let's say for housing price prediction, let's assume that there's a true price of every house yi, which is x transpose um, theta i plus epsilon i, where epsilon i is an error term that includes um, unmodeled effects, you know, and just random noise. Okay. So let's assume that the way, you know, housing prices truly work is that every house's price is a linear function of the size of house and number of bedrooms, plus an error term that catches unmodeled effects, such as Maybe one day that seller's in an unusually good mood or an unusually bad mood, and so that makes the price go higher or lower, and we just don't model that, um, as well as random noise, right? Uh, uh, or maybe I maybe don't model the school district, you know, just didn't capture that as one of the features, but other things have an impact on housing prices. Um, and we're going to assume that uh, 
epsilon i is distributed, Gaussian would mean zero and covariance sigma squared. So I'm going to use this notation to mean, uh, so the way you read this notation is epsilon i, this twiddle you pronounce as is distributed, and then script n parens zero comma sigma squared. This is a normal distribution, also called a Gaussian distribution. Same thing, normal distribution and Gaussian distribution mean the same thing. The normal distribution uh, would mean zero and um, variance sigma squared. Okay? Um, and what this means is that the probability density of epsilon i is, this is the Gaussian density, one over root two pi sigma e to the negative epsilon i squared over two sigma squared. Okay. Oh, and unlike the bell-shaped the bell shaped curve I used earlier for uh, locally weighted linear regression, this thing does integrate to one, right? This this function integrates to one, uh, and so this is a Gaussian density. This is a prob prob probability density function, okay. um, and this is the familiar, you know, Gaussian bell-shaped curve with mean zero and uh, and uh, variance um, uh, sigma squared, right? Where sigma kind of controls the width of this Gaussian. Okay? Uh, and if you haven't seen Gaussians for a while, we'll go over some of the uh, probability, probability prereqs as well in the uh, classes Friday discussion sections. So in other words, um, we assume that the way housing prices are determined is that first there's a true price, theta transpose x, and then you know some random force of nature, right? The mood of the seller or uh, 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 I don't know, I, I, I don't know if uh, other factors, right, perturbs it from this true value, theta transpose x i. Um, and the huge assumption we're going to make is that the epsilon i's, these error terms, are iid. And iid from statistics stands for independently and identically distributed. And what that means is that the error term for one house is independent uh, as the error term for a different house, which is actually not a true assumption, right? Because you know, if, if one house's price on one street is unusually high, probably a price on a different house on the same street will also be unusually high. And so, but uh, this assumption that these epsilon i's are iid, sensor independently and identically distributed, um, is one of those assumptions that, that you know, is probably not absolutely true, but maybe good enough that if you make this assumption, you get a pretty good model. Okay. Um, and so, let's see. Under this set of assumptions, this implies that the density or the probability of yi given xi and theta, this is going to be this. Um, and I'll, I'll take this and write it another way. Okay. In other words, um, given x and theta, what's the density, what's the probability of a particular house's price? Well, it's going to be Gaussian with mean given by theta transpose x, i, or theta transpose x, and variance um, given by sigma squared. Okay? Um, and so uh, b 
because the way that the price of a house is determined is by taking Thales transpose x, which is the, you know, the quote, true price of the house, and then adding noise or adding error of variance sigma squared to it. And so um, the, the assumptions on the left imply that given x and theta, the density of y you know, has this distribution, which is really this is the random variable y, and that's the mean, right? And that's the variance of a Gaussian density. Okay. Now, um, two pieces of notation um, I wanna, want to that that you should get familiar with. Um, the reason I wrote a semicolon here is uh, that. The way you read this equation is the semicolon should be read as uh, parameterized as. Right. Um, and so because uh, uh, you know, the, the alternative way to write this would be to say p of xi given yi, excuse me, p of y given xi comma theta. But if you were to write this notation this way, this would be conditioning on theta. But theta is not a random variable, so you shouldn't condition on theta, which is why I'm going to write a semicolon. And so the way you read this is the probability of yi given xi and parameterized, oh, excuse me, parameterized by theta is equal to that formula. Okay. Um, if, if, if you don't understand this distinction, again, don't worry too much about it. In, in statistics, there are multiple schools of statistics called Bayesian statistics and frequency statistics. This is a frequency interpretation. Uh, for the purposes of machine learning, don't worry about it. But I find that being more consistent with terminology prevents some of our statisticians' friends from getting really upset. But, but, but you know, so I'm, I'll try to follow statistics convention. Uh, uh, so because just don't need unnecessary flack, I guess. Um, but for, the pur for practical purposes, it's not that important. If you get this notation wrong in your homework, don't worry about it. We won't penalize you. But I'll try to be consistent. Um, but this just means that theta, in this view, is not a random variable. It's just theta is a set of parameters that parameterizes this priority distribution. Okay? Um, and the way to read the second equation is um, when you write these equations, you usually don't write them with parentheses. But the way to pause this equation is to say that this thing as a random variable, the random variable y, given x and parameterized by theta, this thing that I just drew in green parentheses is distributed Gaussian with that distribution. Okay? okay. All right. Um, any questions about this? Okay. Cool. So it turns out that <coughs> if you are willing to make those assumptions, then linear regression um, falls out almost naturally of the assumptions we just made. And in particular, under the assumptions we just made, um, the likelihood of the parameters theta, so this is pronounced the likelihood the parameters theta, uh, L of theta, which is defined as the probability of the data. Right? So this is probably of all the values of y, of y1 up to ym, given all the x's and given uh, the parameters theta, parameterized by theta. Um, this is equal to the product from i equals 1 through m 
of p of yi given xi parameterized by theta. Um, because we assume the examples were, because we assume the errors are iid, right, that the error terms are independently and identity distributed to each other. So the probability of all of the observations of all the values of one in your training set is equal to the product of the probabilities because of the independence assumption we made. And so plugging in the definition of p of y given x parameterized by theta that we had up there, this is equal to product of that. Now, um, again, one more piece of terminology. Uh, you know, another question I've often asked is you say, hey, Andrew, what's the difference between likelihood and probability? Right? And so the likelihood of the parameters is exactly the same thing as the probability of the data. Uh, but the reason we sometimes talk about likelihood and sometimes talk about probability is um, we think of likelihood. So this, this is some function, right? This thing is a function of the data as well as a function of the parameters theta. And if you view this number, whatever this number is, if you view this thing as a function of the parameters holding the data fixed, then we call that the likelihood. So if you think of the training set, the data is a fixed thing, and then varying parameters theta, then I'm going to use the term likelihood. Whereas if you view the parameters theta as fixed and maybe varying the data, I'm going to say probability. Right? So, so you hear me use, well, I'll try to be consistent. I find I'm pretty good at being consistent, but not perfect. But I'm going to try to say likelihood of the parameters and probability of the data, even though those evaluate to the same thing. It's just, you know, for this function, this function is a function of data and the parameters. Which one are you viewing as fixed and which one are you viewing as, as variable? So when you view this as a function of theta, I'm going to use the term likelihood. Uh, but so, so hopefully you hear me say likelihood of the parameters. Hopefully you won't hear me say likelihood of the data, right? And, and similarly, hopefully you hear me say probably of the data and not probably of the parameters. Okay? okay. Yeah. Likelihood of parameters. Uh, okay, so probably of the data. No. Uh, 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 wait. Oh, theta, got it, sorry, yes, like of theta, got it, yes. Sorry, yes, like of theta, that's correct. Oh, uh, no, so, no, uh, uh, so theta is a set of parameters, it's, it's not a random variable. So we like the of theta doesn't mean theta is a random variable. Right, cool, yeah, thank you. Um, by the way, the, the, the stuff about what's a random variable and what's not, the semicolon versus comma thing, we explained this in more detail in the lecture notes. To me, this is part of, um, uh, you know, a little bit paying homage to the, to the religion of Bayesian frequencies versus Bayesian, uh, frequencies versus Bayesians in statistics. From a, from a machine, from applied machine learning, operational, what you write code point of view, it doesn't matter that much. Yeah, but theta is not a random variable. We have likelihood of parameters, which are not a random variable. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, what's the rationale for choosing? Uh, oh, sure. Why is epsilon i Gaussian? Uh, so uh, 
uh, turns out because of central limit theorem uh, from statistics, uh, most error distributions are Gaussian, right? If something is, if there's an error that's made up of lots of little noise sources which are not too correlated, then by central limit theorem, it will be Gaussian. So if you think that the, the noise perturbations are, the mood of the seller, what's the school district, you know, what's the weather like, access to transportation, and all of these sources are not too correlated, and you add them up, then the distribution will be Gaussian. Um, and, and I think, well, yeah. So really, because of the central limit theorem, I think the Gaussian has become a default noise distribution. But for things where the true noise distribution is very far from Gaussian, uh, this model does do less well. And in fact, for when you see generalized linear models on Wednesday, you see when how to generalize all of these algorithms to very different distributions like Poisson and so on. All right. So, um, so we've seen the likelihood of the parameter theta. Um, so I'm going to use lowercase l to denote the log likelihood. And the log likelihood is just the log of the likelihood. Um, and so, well, I guess. And so um, log of a product is equal to the sum of the logs. Right? Uh, and so this is equal to and so this is 10 log 1 over root. And so, um, one of the uh, you know, well-tested methods in statistics for estimating parameters is to use maximum likelihood estimation, or MLE. Which means to choose theta to maximize the likelihood, right? So given a data set, how would you like to estimate theta? Well, one natural way to choose theta is to choose whatever value of theta has the highest likelihood. Or in other words, choose the value of theta so that that value of theta maximizes the probability of the data. And so um, for, uh, to simplify the algebra, rather than maximizing the likelihood, capital L, it's actually easier to maximize the log likelihood. But the log is a strictly monotonically increasing function. So the value of theta that maximizes the log likelihood should be the same as the value of theta that maximizes the likelihood. And if you derive the log likelihood, um, we conclude that if you're using maximum likelihood estimation, what you like to do is choose the value of theta that maximizes this thing, right? But uh, this first term is just a constant. Theta doesn't even appear in this first term. And so what you like to do is choose the value of theta that maximizes this second term. Uh, notice there's a minus sign there. And so what you like to do is um, 
uh, i.e., you know, choose theta. to minimize this term. Right, oh, so sigma squared is just a constant, right? No matter what sigma squared is, you know, so, so, uh, so if you want to minimize this term, excuse me, if you want to maximize this term, negative of this thing, that's the same as minimizing this term, uh, but this is just, J of theta, the cost function you saw earlier for linear regression. Okay, so this little proof shows that um, choosing the value of theta to minimize the least squares errors, like you saw last Wednesday, that's just finding the maximum likelihood estimate for the parameters theta under the set of assumptions we made that the error terms are Gaussian and IID. Okay. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Oh, thank you. Yes, great. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, is there a situation where using this formula instead of least squares cost function would be a better idea? No, so this, I think this derivation shows that this, this is completely equivalent to least squares. Right, that if, if you want, if you're willing to assume that the error terms are Gaussian and IID, and if you want to use maximum likelihood estimation, which is a very natural procedure in statistics, then you know, then you should use uh, uh, least squares. Right. So yeah. Uh, if you knew for some reason errors are not ID, which figure a better cost function, uh, yes and no. I think that, um, you know, when building learning algorithms, uh, often we make model, we make assumptions about the world that we just know are not 100% true because it leads to algorithms that are computationally efficient. Um, and so if you knew that your, if you knew that your training set was very, very non-IID, there are, there are more sophisticated models you could build. But, um, uh, uh, yeah, but, but very often we wouldn't bother, I think, yeah. M more often than not, we might not bother. Uh, I can think of a few special cases where you would bother, but only if you think the assumptions are really, really bad, uh, and if you don't have enough data and something. something. Quite, quite rare. All right. Um, let me think. Boy, all right. I want to move on to make sure we get through the rest of things. Any burning questions? Yeah? Okay, cool. All right. Um, so armed with this machinery, right? So, so, so what did we do here? Was we set up a set of probabilistic assumptions. We made certain assumptions about P of Y given X, right? The key assumption was Gaussian errors and IID. And then through maximum likelihood estimation, we derived an algorithm, which turns out to be exactly the least squares algorithm, right? Um, what I'd like to do is take this framework uh, and apply it to our first classification problem. Right? And so the, the, the key steps are, you know, one, make an assumption about P of Y given X, uh, P of Y given X parameter on data, and then second is figure out maximum likelihood estimation. So I'd like to take this framework and apply it to a different type of problem where uh, the value of Y is now either zero or one. So it's a classification problem, okay? So um, let's see.
So in the classification problem, in our first classification problem, we're going to start with binary classification. So the value of y is either 0 or 1. And sometimes we call this binary classification because there are two classes. Um, and so, right? So that's a data set where I guess this is x and this is y. Um, so something that's not a good idea is apply linear regression to this data set. Some, sometimes you will do it and maybe they'll get away with it, but I wouldn't do it. And here's why, which is um, it's tempting to just fit a straight line to this data and then take the straight line and threshold it at 0.5, and then say, oh, if it's above 0.5, round off to 1. If it's below 0.5, round it off to 0. But it turns out that this um, is not a good idea uh, for classification problems. And, and here's why, which is, for this data set, it's really obvious what the, what the pattern is, right? Everything to the left of this point predicts 0. Everything to the right of that point predicts 1. But let's say we now change the data set to just add one more example there, right? And the pattern is still really obvious. It's everything to the left of this predict zero. I think to the right of that predict one. But if you fit a straight line to this data set with this extra one point there, and this is not even an outlier. It's really obvious that this point way out there should be labeled one. But with this extra example, um, if you fit a straight line to the data, you end up with maybe something like that. Um, and somehow, adding this one example, it really didn't change anything, right? But somehow the straight line fit moved from the green line to the, uh, moved from the blue line to the green line. And if you now threshold it at 0.5, you end up with a very different decision boundary. Right? And so linear regression is just not a good algorithm for classification. Some people use it, and sometimes they get lucky and it's not too bad, but I, pr I, I personally never use linear regression for classification algorithms, right? Because you just don't know if you, end up with a really bad fit to the data like this, okay? Um, so, oh, and, and, and the other unnatural thing about using linear regression for a classification problem is that um, you know for a classification problem that the values are, you know, zero or one, right? And so to output negative values or values even greater than one seems, seems strange. Um, so what I'd like to share with you now is really probably by far the most commonly used classification algorithm uh, called logistic regression. I want to say the two learning algorithms I probably use the most often are linear regression and logistic regression. Yeah, probably, probably that's true, actually, yeah. Right. Um, and uh, this is the algorithm. So. Um, as, as we designed the logistic regression algorithm, one of the things we might naturally want is for the hypothesis to output values between 0 and 1. Right? And this is mathematical notation for the values for h of x or h, prime, you know, h subscript theta of x uh, lies in the set from 0 to 1. Right? The 0 to 1 square bracket is a set of all real numbers from 0 to 1. So this says we want the hypothesis output values in, you know, between 0 and 1, so in, in the set of all numbers between, from 0 to 1. Um, and so we're going to choose the following form of the hypothesis. Um, so okay. 
So I'm going to define a function g of z that looks like this. And this is called the sigmoid uh, or the logistic function. Uh, these are synonyms. They mean exactly the same thing. So uh, it can be called the sigmoid function or the logistic function. It means exactly the same thing. But I'm going to choose a function g of z. Um, and this function is shaped as follows. If you plot this function, you find that it looks like this. Um, where if the horizontal axis is z, then this is g of z. And so it crosses x-intercept at 0. Um, and it you know, starts off, well, really, really close to 0, rises, and then asymptotes towards 1. Okay? And so g of z outputs values uh, between 0 and 1. And um, what logistic regression does is instead of Let's see. So previously, for linear regression, we had chosen this form for the hypothesis. Right? We just made a choice that we'll say that housing prices are a linear function of the features x. And what logistic regression does is, say the transpose x could be bigger than 1, it could be less than 0, which is not very natural. But it's going to take theta transpose x and pass it through this sigmoid function g so that it's forced to output values only between 0 and 1. Okay. Um, so, you know, when designing a learning algorithm, uh, sometimes you just have to choose the form of the hypothesis, how you're going to represent the function h, or h, of h subscript theta. And so we're making that choice here today. And if you're wondering, you know, there are lots of functions that we could have chosen, right? There are lots of, why, why, not, uh, uh, why not this function? Or why not, you know, there are lots of functions with vaguely this shape that go between 0 and 1. So why are we choosing this specifically. It turns out that there's a broader class of algorithms called generalized linear models. You hear about on Wednesday, uh, of which this is a special case. So we've seen linear regression, you see logistic regression in a second, and on Wednesday you see that both of these examples of a much bigger set of algorithms derive using a broader set of principles. So, so for now, just you know, take my word for it that, that we want to use the logistic function. Uh, uh, it'll turn out, you see on Wednesday, that there's a way to derive even this function from um, uh, from more basic principles rather than just pulling all this, this out of hat. But for now, let, let me just pull this out of a hat and say that's the one we want to use. Okay. <coughs> so, um, Let's make some assumptions about the distribution of y given x parameterized by theta. So I'm going to assume that the data has the following distribution. The probability of y being 1, uh, again, from the breast cancer prediction that we had from uh, the first lecture, right? it would be the chance of a tumor being cancerous or being um, uh, malignant, chance of y being 1 given the size of a tumor, that's a feature x, parameterized by theta, that this is equal to the output of your hypothesis. So in other words, we're going to assume that um, what you want your learning algorithm to do is input the features and tell me what's the chance that this tumor is malignant. Right? What's the chance that y is equal to 1? Um, and 
by logic, I guess, because y can be only 1 or 0, the chance of y being equal to 0, this has got to be 1 minus that. Right, because if a tumor has a 10% chance of being malignant, that means it has a 1 minus that. It means it must have a 90% chance of being benign, right, since these two probabilities must add up to 1. Okay, yeah. Uh, say that again? Oh, can we change the parameter? Yes, you can, but I'm not, yeah. But I think just to stick with convention in legislative direction, you, you, yeah, sure. We could assume that P of Y equals 1 was this and P of Y equals 1 was that, but I think either way, it's just what you call a positive example, what you call a negative example. Right, so, so I want to use this convention. Okay. Um, and now, bearing in mind that Y, right, by definition, because it's a binary classification problem. But bear in mind that y can only take on two values, 0 or 1. Um, there's a nifty sort of little algebra way to take these two equations and write them in one equation. And this will make some of the math a little bit easier. We're going to take these two equations, take these two assumptions, or take these two facts, and compress it into one equation, which is this. Oh, and I dropped the theta subscript just to simplify the notation a bit. Right? I'm, I'm going to be a little bit sloppy sometimes. Well, a little less formal whether I write the theta there or not. Okay? Um, but these two definitions of P of Y given X parameterized by theta, bearing in mind that Y is either 0 or 1, can be compressed into one equation like this. Uh, and, and let me just say why. Right? It's because if Y... If y is equal to 1, then this becomes h of x to the power of 1 times this thing to the power of 0. Right? If y is equal to 1, then um, 1 minus y is 0. And you know anything to the power of 0 is just equal to 1. <coughs> and so if y is equal to 1, you end up with p of y given x parameterized by theta equals h of x which is just what we had there. And conversely, if y is equal to 0, then um, this thing would be 0, and this thing would be 1. And so you end up with p of y given x parameters theta is equal to 1 minus h of x, which is just equal to that second equation. Okay? Right. Um, and so this is a nifty way to take these two equations and compress them into one line, because depending on whether y is 0 or 1, one of these two terms switches off because it's exponentiated to the power of 0. Um, and anything to the power of 0 is just equal to 1. Right? So one of these terms is just you know, 1, uh, thus leaving the other term and thus selecting the, the appropriate equation depending on whether y is 0 or 1. Okay. So with that, um, uh, so with this little uh, know, notational trick, it will make the later derivations simpler. Okay. Um, yeah. So.
the new board. Actually, can we use a lot of this? All right, so uh, we're going to use maximum likelihood estimation again. So let's write down the likelihood of the parameters. Um, so, oh, well, it's actually PF all the y's given all the x's parameterized by theta, which is equal to this, uh, which is now equal to product from i equals 1 through m h of xi to the power of yi times 1 minus h of xi to the power of 1 minus yi. <coughs> okay, Where uh, all I did was take this definition of p of y given x parameterized by theta. Uh, you know, from that, after we did that little exponentiation trick and wrote it in here. Right. Um, and then. Uh, with maximum likelihood estimation, we'll want to find the value of theta that maximizes the likelihood, maximizes the likelihood of the parameters. And so um, same as what we did for linear regression, to make the algebra, you know, to, to, to make the algebra a bit more simple, we're going to take the log of the likelihood and so compute the log likelihood. And so that's equal to um, let's see. Right, and so if you take the log of that, uh, you end up with you end up with that. Okay, and. Um, it, so, so in other words, uh, the last thing you want to do is try to choose the value of theta to try to maximize L of theta. Okay. Now, so so just just to summarize where we are, right? Uh, if you're trying to predict your know, malignancy and benignness of uh, tumors. You'd have a training set with xi, yi. You define the likelihood, define the log likelihood, and then what you need to do is have an algorithm, such as gradient descent or gradient ascent, talk about that in a sec, to try to find the value of theta that maximizes the log likelihood. And then having chosen the value of theta, when a new patient walks into the doctor's office, you would you know, take the features of the new tumor and then use h of theta to estimate the chance of this new tumor and the new patient that walks in tomorrow, to estimate the chance that this new thing is, uh, is, is malignant or benign. Okay. So um, the algorithm we're going to use to choose theta to try to maximize the log likelihood is a gradient ascent, or batch gradient ascent. And what that means is um, we will update the parameters theta j according to theta j plus the partial derivative with respect to the log likelihood. Okay? Um, and the differences from what you saw for uh, linear regression from last time is the following. Uh, just two differences, I guess. For linear regression, last week I had written this down. Theta j gets updated as theta j 
minus partial with respect to theta j of j of theta, right? So you saw this on Wednesday. So the two differences between that is, uh, well, first, instead of j of theta, you're now trying to optimize the log likelihood instead of the squared cost function. And the second change is, previously, you were trying to minimize the squared error. That's why we had the minus. And today, you're trying to maximize the log likelihood, which is why there's a plus sign. Okay? And so, um, so gradient descent you know, is trying to climb down this hill, whereas gradient ascent has a, um, uh, has a, has a concave function like this, and is trying to right, climb up the hill rather than climb down the hill. So that's why there's a plus symbol here instead of a minus symbol, because you're trying to maximize the function rather than minimize the function. So um, the last thing to, to really flesh out this algorithm, which uh, is done in the lecture notes, but I don't want to do it here today, is to uh, plug in the definition of h of theta into this equation, and then take this thing. So that's the log likelihood of theta. And then through you know, calculus and algebra, uh, you could take derivatives of this whole thing with respect to theta. This is done in detail in the lecture notes, so I don't want to do this in class. But go ahead and take derivatives of this big formula with respect to um, the parameters theta in order to figure out what is that thing, right? What is this thing that I just circled? And it turns out that if you do so, you will find that bash gradient ascent is the following. You will update theta j according to Oh, actually, I'm sorry, I forgot the learning rate. Yeah, it's your learning rate alpha. Okay. Learning rate alpha times this. Okay. Uh, because this term here is the partial derivative with respect to theta j of the log likelihood. Okay, and the full calculus and so on derivations given in the lecture notes, okay? Um, yeah. uh, oh, uh, is there a chance of local maximum in this case? Uh, no, there isn't. It turns out that this function, the, the log likelihood function, L of theta, full logistic regression, it always looks like that. Uh, so this is a uh, concave function. So there are no local, op the, the, the only maximum is a global maximum. That's actually another reason why we chose the logistic function, because if you choose the logistic function, rather than some other function going from 0 to 1, you're guaranteed that the likelihood function has only one global maximum. Uh, and this, th there's actually a big class of algorithms. Actually, what you see on Wednesday is there's a big class of algorithms, of which linear regression is one example, logistic regression is another example, and for all of these algorithms in this class, there are no local optimal problems when you, when you derive them this way. So you see that on Wednesday when we talk about generalized linear models. Okay. Um, so actually, before I take your questions, just one, one question for you to think about. This looks exactly the same as what we figured out for linear regression, right? Like when, when actually, the difference for linear regression was I had a minus sign here, and I reverse these two terms. I think I h theta of xi minus yi. If you put the minus sign there and reverse these two terms, so take the minus minus, this is actually exactly the same as what we had come up with for linear regression. So why, why, why is this different, right? I started off saying don't use linear regression for classification problems because of uh, 
because of that problem that a single example could really, you know, so I start off with an example of showing that linear regression is really bad for classification, and we did all this work and came back to the same algorithm. So what happened? Just, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, all right, cool, awesome, right? So what happened is the definition of H of theta is now different than before, but the surface level of the equation turns out to be the same, okay? Um, and again, it turns out that for every algorithm in this class of algorithms you see on Wednesday, you, you end up with the same thing. Actually, this is a general property of a much bigger class of algorithms called generalized linear models. Um, although, yeah, I I interesting historical divergence uh, 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 because of the confusion between these two algorithms, in the early history of machine learning, there was some debate about, you know, between academics saying, no, I invented that, no, I invented that, but, and, 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 and then the no, it's actually different algorithms, right? <laughs> All right, any questions? Oh, go ahead. Oh, great question. Is there equivalence to um, normal equations to logistic regression? Um, short answer is no. Uh, so for linear regression, the normal equations gives you like a one-shot way to just find the best value of theta. Uh, there is no known way to just have a closed form equation that lets you find the best value of theta, which is why you always have to use an algorithm, an iterative optimization algorithm, such as gradient ascent, or uh, in, we'll see in a second, Newton's method. So, um, there's a great lead-in to um, the last topic for today, which is Newton's method. You know, gradient ascent, right? It's a good algorithm. I use gradient ascent all the time, but it takes a baby step, takes a baby step, takes a baby step, takes a lot of iterations for gradient ascent to converge. Um, there's another algorithm called Newton's method, which allows you to take much bigger jumps to let theta, you know, so, so uh, there are problems where you might need, you know, say 100 iterations or 1,000 iterations of gradient ascent that if you run this algorithm called Newton's method, you might need only 10 iterations to get to a very good value of theta. Um, but each iteration will be more expensive. We'll talk about pros and cons in a second. But um, let's see how, let's, let's describe this algorithm, which is sometimes much faster for gradient, than gradient ascent for optimizing the value of theta, okay? So um, what we'd like to do is, uh, so let me, let me use a simplified one-dimensional problem to describe Newton's method. Um, so I'm going to solve a slightly different problem with Newton's method, which is, say you have some function f, right, and you want to find a theta such that f of theta is equal to zero, okay? So this is a problem that Newton's method solves. And the way we're gonna uh, use this later is what you really want is to maximize L of theta right? 
And well, at the maximum, the first derivative must be 0. So i.e., you want a value where the derivative L prime of theta is equal to 0. Right? And L prime is the derivative of theta. I guess this is right, L prime is another notation for the first derivative of theta. So you want to maximize a function or minimize a function. What that really means is you want to find a point where the derivative is equal to 0. So the way we're going to use Newton's method is we're going to set f of theta equal to the derivative and then try to find a point where the derivative is equal to 0. Okay? But uh, to explain Newton's method, I'm going to you know, work on this other problem where you have a function f and you just want to find the value of theta where f of theta is equal to 0. And then, and then we'll set f equal to L prime theta and that's how we'll, we'll apply this to um, logistic regression. So. Let me draw in pictures how this algorithm works. Uh, well. yeah. All right. So let's say that's the function f, um, and you know to make this drawable on a whiteboard, I'm going to assume theta is just a row number for now. So theta is just a single, you know, like a scalar, a row number. Um, so this is how Newton's method works. Um, oh, and the goal is to find this point, right? The goal is to find the value of theta where f of theta is equal to 0. Okay? So let's say you start off um, right. let's say you start off at this point, right? At the first iteration, you know, randomly initialize theta or initialize theta is 0 or something. But let's say you start off at that point. This is how one iteration of Newton's method will work, which is actually let me use a different color. Right, start off with theta zero. That's just the first value, first iteration. What we're going to do is look at the function f, and then find a line that's just tangent to f. So take the derivative of f and find a line that's just tangent to f. So take that red line that just touches the function f. And we're going to use, if you will, use a straight line approximation to f and solve for where f touches the horizontal axis. So we're going to solve for the point where this straight line touches the horizontal axis. Okay? And then we're going to set this, and that's one iteration of Newton's method. So we're going to move from this value to this value. Okay? Um, and then in the second iteration of Newton's method, we're going to look at this point, and again, you know, take a line that's just tangent to it, and then solve for where this touches the horizontal axis, and then that's after two iterations of Newton's method. Right? And then you repeat. Take this. Sometimes you can overshoot a little bit, but that's okay. Right? And then that's, um, because I'll cycle back to red. That's theta 3. Then you take this. That's theta 4. <coughs> <coughs> So you can tell that um, Newton's method is actually a pretty fast algorithm, right? In, in just what one, two, three, four iterations, we've gotten really, really close uh, to the point where f if of theta is equal to zero. Um, so let's write out the math for how you do this. So um, let's see. 
I'm going to, so let me just write out the derive, um, you know, how you go from theta zero to theta one. So I'm going to use this horizontal distance. I'm going to denote this as uh, delta. This triangle is uppercase Greek alphabet delta, right? Uh, this is lowercase delta, that's uppercase delta, right? Um, and then the height here, well, that's just f of theta zero, right? Since the height of, is just f of theta zero. And so, um, let's see. So uh, what we like to do is solve for the value of delta because one iteration of Newton's method is to set, you know, theta one is set to theta zero minus delta, right? So how do you solve for delta? Well, from uh, calculus, we know that the slope of the function f is the height over the run, right? Height over the width. And so we know that the derivative of delta f prime that's the derivative of f at the point theta zero, that's equal to the height, that's f of theta, divided by the horizontal, right? So the derivative, meaning the slope of the red line is by definition of derivatives, is this ratio between this height over this width. Um, and so delta is equal to f of theta zero over f prime of theta zero, and if you plug that in, <clears throat> then you find that a single iteration of Newton's method is the following rule. Theta t plus 1 gets updated as theta t minus f of theta t over f prime of theta t, okay? Uh, where instead of 0 and 1, I replaced it with t and t plus 1, right? Um, and finally, to, to, you know, the very first thing we did was uh, let's let f of theta be equal to, say, L prime of theta, right? Because we want to find the place where the first derivative of L is 0. Then this becomes theta t plus 1 gets updated as theta t minus L prime of theta t over L double prime of theta t. So it's really uh, the first derivative divided by the second derivative, okay? Um, so, <coughs> Newton's method is a very fast algorithm, and uh, it has, um, Newton's method enjoys a property called quadratic convergence. Not a great name, don't worry, don't worry too much about what it means. But, but informally what it means is that um, if on one iteration, Newton's method has 0.01 error, so on the x-axis you're 0.01 away from the, from the value, from, from the true minimum or the true value of f is equal to zero, um, after one iteration, the error could go to 0 0.0001 error. And after two iterations, it could go to 0, 0, because 0, 0. Right. But roughly, it, Newton's method, um, under certain assumptions uh, uh, that function is smooth, not too far from quadratic, 
the number of significant digits that you have converged the minimum doubles on a single iteration. So this is called quadratic conversions. Um, and so when you get near the minimum, Newton's method converges extremely rapidly. Right? So, so after a single iteration, it becomes much more accurate. After another iteration, it becomes way, way, way more accurate, which is why Newton's method requires relatively few iterations. Um, and uh, <coughs> let's see. I have written out Newton's method for when theta is a real number. Um, when theta is a vector, Then the generalization of the rule I wrote above is the following. Theta t plus 1 gets updated as theta t plus h that, where h is the Hessian matrix. So these details are written in the lecture notes. Um, but to give you a sense, it, when theta is a vector, this is a vector of derivatives. Right, so it's, I guess this is Rn plus 1 dimensional if uh, theta is an Rn plus 1. Then uh, this derivative respect to theta of the log likelihood becomes a vector of derivatives. And the Hessian matrix, this becomes a matrix as Rn plus 1 by n plus 1. So it becomes a squared matrix with the dimension equal to the parameter vector theta. And the Hessian matrix is defined as the matrix of partial derivatives. Um, right. So, um, <clears throat> and so the disadvantage of Newton's method is that in high-dimensional problems, if theta is a vector, that each step of Newton's method is much more expensive because um, you're, you're either solving linear system equations or having to invert a pretty big matrix. So if theta is 10-dimensional, you know, this involves inverting a 10 by 10 matrix, which is fine. But if theta was 10,000 or 100,000, then each iteration requires computing like 100,000 by 100,000 matrix and inverting that, which is very hard, right? It's actually very difficult to do that in very high-dimensional problems. Um, so, you know, some rules of thumb, um, if the number of parameters you have for the, if the number of parameters of the regression is not too big, if you have 10 parameters or 50 parameters, I would almost certainly, I would very likely use um, Newton's method uh, because then you probably get convergence in maybe 10 iterations or you know, 15 iterations or, or even less than 10 iterations. But if you have a very large number of parameters, if you have you know, 10,000 parameters, then rather than dealing with a 10,000 by 10,000 matrix, or even bigger, than 50,000 by 50,000 matrix, if you have 50,000 parameters, I would use a gradient descent instead. Okay? But if the number of parameters is not too big, so that the computational cost per iteration is manageable, then Newton's method converges in a very small number of iterations and, and can be a much faster algorithm than gradient descent. All right. So um, that's it for uh, Newton's method. Um, on Wednesday, I guess I'm running out of time. On Wednesday, you hear about generalized linear models. Um, I think, unfortunately, I, I, I promised to be in Washington, D.C. Uh, uh, tonight, I guess, through Wednesday. So uh, you hear from some, I think uh, Anand will give the lecture on Wednesday. Uh, but I will be back next week. So, unfortunately, he was planning to do this, but because of his health things, he can't lecture. So, so Anand will be doing this Wednesday. Thanks, everyone. See you on Wednesday.